You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Today's readings. The first reading The first reading is taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. Starting at verse 1, it can be found on page 657 of your church Bible. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces With two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. Here endeth the first reading. Our second reading this morning is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Chapter 5, verses 1 through to 12. It can be found on page 858. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Please take a seat. Ah, All right. He's the moron who tried to fit this passage into one sermon. Gosh. That's me, by the way. I wasn't calling anyone else a moron. um, I'm going to pray for God's help. That we'll, that we'll get through all of this in the time that we have. It might be that I just have to cut us off at some point and say to be continued next week. So let's see how we go. Let's pray. Father, please open our hearts to receive your words from the word made flesh. Use it to challenge and change us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've always been fascinated by human behaviour... Um, not just at the individual 
level, but at the corporate level, at the cultural level, what makes us tick? What makes us behave the way that we behave? I don't know if this resonates with anyone, but I'm fascinated by this. Like, you know, you can look at different cultures and the kind of um, inherent, almost instinctive way they behave and ask, how did this come about? What shaped them to be this way? For example, what makes Australians as an, as an culture incapable of obeying the law that says keep left unless overtaking. Why is that? How has this happened? This is what led me to enrol in all of the university courses that I did at the end of high school, none of which I actually went and did, but I, I, I enrolled in psychology, which is you know, obviously the study of human behaviour at some level, uh, and, uh, and advertising, which is exactly the same thing, but just for the purpose of making money out of people. Um, history, without which we can't understand anything. And uh, marine biology, which has nothing to do with anything um, when it comes to human behaviour. But anyway, these, the kind of thread that runs through the first three of those and the eventual one that I did enrol in and didn't end up doing either, philosophy, all of these things, all of these studies, all of these disciplines are really seeking to understand what makes us us. And, and I think if you drill right down the thread that runs through all of them or through all human history is the question, what makes for the good life? What, what is it that makes for a good life? What is it that makes for a happy life or a flourishing life? This is the third that runs across cultures and across religions and across time periods. This is the question that humans have always asked and continue to ask. What will make me happy? What is the secret of the good life? This is the question that Jesus is answering this is the vision that he is painting for us in the Beatitudes. Beatitude just comes from the, the Latin word beat, which means blessed. You can translate that happy or flourishing, I think, is a really good key to understanding the whole Sermon on the Mount. What, is, what makes for a happy, blessed, flourishing life? We'll get to Jesus' version of events in just a minute. But if you want to know like the collective consciousness when it comes to this, a really good place and a new way for us to understand this without kind of piling into history or philosophy or psychology or even advertising, a really good way of understanding this at the kind of meta-cultural level is to go to social media. If you go to Instagram, what you will see is a kind of visual list of Beatitudes a visual summary of what our culture believes is the happy life, the blessed life. Whether it is actually has anything to do with the reality of my life is a whole other question. But, but what I'm projecting is, this is what the good life looks like. It's, you know, like good-looking kids and obedient pets and money and holidays and cars and women and whatever. Like, Different people will have different representations, but they kind of all bleed into one at the end of the day. And I haven't been on Instagram for a few years, but I'm pretty sure that's still what it runs on. It runs on this desire for us to know what is the blessed life and how can I get it. 
Of course, the tragedy of that particular medium is that what it produces in me actually is just despair that I don't have any of the things that constitute the blessed life, the good life, the flourishing life. I think what Jesus is speaking in his Beatitudes, what he's saying to us, will strike a chord with each one of us, really irrespective if you're a follower of him or not. What he's tapping into here is something, a vein that runs through every person who's ever lived. This is why Jesus' Beatitudes are not historically kind of, um, they're, they're not unique. Every philosopher and sage worth his salt in Jesus' day had a list of Beatitudes. Uh, you can, or, or in the Greek world, they're called macarisms. It's just like, he, he, I am wise, I will tell you what constitutes a good life. Here are some orientation points that, such that if you live them, you will experience happiness. Now, what makes Jesus' Beatitudes unique is that they're so paradoxical. I was reading this, this sort of just a kind of secular account of macarisms of, of these types of teaching in the ancient world and the guy had outlined all of these teachings from Greek and Roman philosophers and through the Chinese philosophy, like just, he just did a summary survey of them all, even included some of the Psalms by way of kind of a Hebrew um, understanding and then right at the bottom he said, and here's Jesus' Beatitudes, they belong in a different category because they're so weird. They're so paradoxical. The reason that wise men and women for all of human history as we have it have wanted to speak to this desire for happiness is because it's what unites us all at some level. The great Christian mathematician, philosopher, Blaise Pascal, this is what he said about happiness. He said, all men and women seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. Desire for happiness. Desire for blessedness. Desire for a kind of flourishing that I'm not yet experiencing. This is what Jesus is going to outline for us in his Beatitudes. And what I want to do is just try and understand from the, from the bird's eye view the kind of purpose he has in this, in leading off his great Sermon on the Mount with this list. It's, there's a reason it comes first. It paves the way for everything else we're going to learn. I want to see his purpose, and then we're just going to take one at a time until I run out of time. All right? So first of all, what's his purpose in doing this? We've already said this is not unique to him, but his way of elucidating it, his way of explaining it, the content of his Beatitudes is very unique. 
Here's a, here's a go at a kind of summary purpose. The Beatitudes are both a description of and an invitation to the good life, the blessed life, the happy life. Jesus is offering his hearers a way of being in the world that will result in their flourishing now and in the age to come. So it's both description of and invitation to. I said last week, the purpose of this is not, as Martin Luther understood it, it's not just to get you to despair of how crap you are and throw yourself on God's mercy. It's more than that, much more than that. It is an invitation to, as well as a description of, the good life, the blessed life. Now, there's a much more poetic way of putting this, which I found from a Roman Catholic thinker uh, who had never come across before. But his name is, I think, pronounced Cervais Pinkers. Um, anyway, this is what he said. This is his sort of poetic description of what Jesus' purpose is in this room this morning as we open up the Beatitudes. He says, we can compare the work of the Beatitudes to that of a plough in the fields. Drawn along with determination, it drives the sharp edge of the ploughshare into the earth and carves it out. As the poets say, a deep wound, a broad furrow. Now, in the same way, the word of the Beatitudes penetrates us with the power of the Holy Spirit. In order to break up our interior soil, it cuts through us with the sharp edge of trials and with the struggles it provokes. It overturns our ideas and projects, reverses the obvious, thwarts our desires and bewilders us, leaving us poor and naked before God. All of this in order to prepare a place within us for the seed of new life. That's exactly God's purpose in this room this morning. Now, our problem is that we have kind of domesticated these sayings. We already know them. We have sort of shorn off them the sharp edge. They don't appear to us to be crazy paradoxical sayings like they would have to the original hearers. And so we don't have the opportunity for our, our ideas to be overturned for the obvious to be reversed, for our desires to be thwarted. So we just need to do that now. We just need to reset, sit with Jesus' disciples on the mountain, both his disciples in front of him and then a large crowd of curious people around him. Whether you are a follower of Jesus today or someone who's just curious, he is speaking to each one of us and we need to allow these sayings to penetrate like a like a sharp plow drags through our hearts now with that in mind let's get to it and i'm just going to take one at a time and then i'm going to try and sort of illustrate what i think jesus means by each of these things hopefully more often than not with his own teaching right he's the best interpreter of himself here we go, verse 1 to 3 of Matthew chapter 5. When the crowd saw, sorry, when he saw, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed 
are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now again, you need to you really need to put yourself in the 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 first person place of the audience at this time. This is the best way to understand the Bible, no matter what verse you're looking at. What was Jesus saying to the original hearers? How would they have received it? And those who are sitting there with him, even his disciples who have just been called by him to become fishers of men, they would have, along with everyone else, gone, wait, what? They're expecting him to give them a macarism. They're expecting him to give them a list of beatitudes. This is what teachers did. This is, this, is, this is my vision for life here on earth. A life that is blessed, that is happy, that is flourishing. But he leads with and continues through such paradox that they can't help but be kind of shaken by it. Blessed, happy, flourishing are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? How can the kingdom of heaven belong to the poor in spirit? Isn't it the super spiritual that belong to the, hev- the, the kingdom of heaven? Isn't it the holy, the righteous, the pure, the religious leaders? The guy who's paid to be up the front speaking to us, aren't they citizens of the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, no, listen, it's the poor in spirit. Why? Why does the kingdom of heaven belong to the poor in spirit? Because the poor in spirit are those who recognize that they are bankrupt. Those who recognize that they are without hope. Those who have come to the end of themselves, maybe through a whole long series of attempts to make God love them or to earn enough righteousness or to make up for all of their sinfulness throughout life and have come to the end of themselves and say, God, if you don't save me, I'm damned. Those are the poor in spirit, and that's why the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. This is, as I say, like the first cornerstone in the whole edifice. This is the reason Jesus leads with this. This has its echoes throughout the whole gospel and and indeed the Sermon on the Mount. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a classic book on the Sermon on the Mount And here's what he said about this first beatitude. He says, There is no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit. It is the fundamental characteristic of the Christian and of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And all other characteristics are, in a sense, the result of this one. So you think, what does it mean to be a Christian, a mature Christian, a follower of Jesus? Answer, it means to be poor in spirit. It means that I know that I am bankrupt. There is no one in the kingdom of heaven who is not poor in spirit. 
one of the most evocative descriptions of this obviously comes from Jesus himself. And I just want to read this to you, this parable in Luke chapter 18. He's trying to paint a picture for us of what this looks like. He says, or Luke says of him, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on the poor in spirit. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking, striking his chest, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus throws the grenade. I tell you, this one, the sinful one, went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Don't domesticate either the Beatitudes or Jesus' parables. They're meant to hit you in the face hard and strike you in the heart till you bleed. Next one, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Flowing from the first... Blessed are those who mourn. Happy are those who are sad. (laughs) What? Again, you're sitting on the mountain, you're hearing this, you you would kind of, well, overlook the first one. He didn't, he's new at this, all right? He's just started his public ministry. He stuffed up the first one, but then you get to the seven, you're like, what the heck is this guy on? Happy are the sad. What does he mean? And Jesus says, listen, there is a sadness, there is a grief that leads to comfort, that leads to happiness, that leads to flourishing. There is a kind of sadness that is good for us. Blessed, happy, flourishing are those who mourn. Paul picks up on this in 2 Corinthians. You might remember we worked through this a couple of years ago, the second letter to the Corinthians, and here he explains. He's like, listen, there is this godly grief. And And godly grief, unlike worldly grief, it produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. There is a grief that leads to deliverance. There is a sadness that leads to true happiness. 
Again, let's let Jesus paint the picture for us, okay? Another parable, the parable of the lost son. I'll skip through. You know the first part of it. The lost son is completely lost. He is at a point where he is indeed poor in spirit. He is grieving and mourning over his condition as someone who has left his gracious father and found himself at the end of himself. And it says, when he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired workers would have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. He grieves over his state. Then he decides to act. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. Repentance. Literally has gone as far away as possible, grieves over his state and turns around and heads back, back home, heads back to the father. And then this is the astonishing result. He wants to be a slave. He plans to offer himself as a slave. So he got up and went to his father, but while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran through his arms around his neck and kissed him. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus knows what God is like. He knows what we are like. He knows that we will invariably, as sure as night follows day, we will, in our pursuit of happiness and the blessed life, end up bankrupt. We'll end up feeding pigs. And at that point, he said, blessed are you if you mourn. Blessed are you if you are sad. If you don't just medicate and numb yourself to the sadness, if you don't just spend money and acquire relationships and pad yourself out with whatever Instagram says is the blessed life. Blessed are you if you ignore all of that crap and just mourn over your state. Be sad and you will be led to comfort, happiness. Why? Because God always welcomes home the lost son. Without exception. Even the person in this room right now is saying, yeah, but you don't know, I I committed adultery and I hate myself for it. Jesus says, you're blessed. Not because of your sin, but because you've recognized it. Now, go home. Or in his case, come home. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed happy because they'll be comforted. See it in the lost son, the grief, the repentance, and then the ultimate reconciliation, forgiveness, grace. Blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Verse 5, blessed are the humble for they will inherit the earth. Humility, meekness, blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble. Humility, meekness, this is 
not using my power to my advantage. Not using my power to leverage my own prosperity. That's what meekness is. Some people are meek by personality. They're just, you know, like, they're conflict aversive. That's not what Jesus means. He's not saying you need to have a certain personality that's just kind of happy-go-lucky. This is whoever you are, whatever advantages you have, you don't use them for your own ends. Now, the truth is, this is paradoxical because it's a recipe for poverty. Everyone knows this. If you've ever done an MBA or you've done any kind of course in self-improvement, I'm told that the most popular request for kind of self-improvement courses is assertiveness courses, right? This is how you get ahead. You learn to get your way. Learn how to negotiate a deal. Learn how to impose yourself. Learn, as Scott said, he doesn't like uh, job interviews because he doesn't like to sell himself. Well, you need to learn that if you're going to get anywhere in life. Not all of us can just wander into jobs God got for us, right? Sometimes you've got to get your own. That's what the culture tells us. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with assertiveness per se, and I don't think Jesus is inviting you into being some kind of doormat, but here's what he's saying. The blessed life, the flourishing life, is a life in which you don't take advantage of others. You don't insist on your own way being the only way. You don't leverage your advantages, your privileges for your own sake. This is a challenge to us, and it was a challenge to them. Like one of the truisms of life from 2,000 years ago to now is that nice guys finish last. We all know this. But listen, and here's what we have to come back to over and over again through this series. Here it's just simple. To be a Christian is to follow Jesus. It's that simple. To be a Christian is to follow Jesus. What does he do? I'm going to do it. Even if it costs me, I'm going to do it. We can make this very, very simple for ourselves. I'm not saying there isn't ambiguity and there isn't times in which you're going to have to wrestle with what God is calling you to do, but at the bottom level, a Christian is a follower of Jesus. His disciples understood this. We're going to see their protest to this in just a minute, but... Or at least not a protest, but like a, a sense of despair. Like, what does this mean for us? If we're going to follow you, what does this mean for us? For our lives, for our prosperity. If we are going to follow Jesus, it means we're going to embrace full-blooded the call to humility. Why? Because there's been no greater example. In the history of the universe, no greater example of humility of condescension. Paul outlines it for us, right? And he's speaking to all of us in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interest of others. 
adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian, this is simple. Not easy, but it's simple. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, leveraged. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Damn. Even to death on a cross. So there's the example. (laughs) Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Another paradox. Nice guys finish last. They inherit nothing. Jesus says, blessed are the humble, for they inherit the earth. Again, the example is Jesus. We follow him in his example of humility and of exaltation. Go to the next verse, 9 to 11. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You have humiliation and exaltation. And the same pattern applies. The follower of Jesus is willingly humiliated, humbled, and then exalted. The humble, the meek, will inherit the earth. We will reign with Jesus over the new creation. We don't talk about that very much. We get that he will be exalted above every other name, But the Bible says we will reign with him. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. You have this this kind of crisis. Remember, the, the disciples, they got called to follow Jesus like a chapter ago. And now they're thrown into this situation where their teacher, their master, their Uh, Rabbi is talking nonsense all of a sudden. And so they're confronted with the paradox. They're confronted with this invitation, exhortation to live as the poor in spirit, as those who mourn, as the humble, the meek. And so you have Peter later in this gospel, Peter he, he says to Jesus in, in Matthew 19, he said, uh, Peter responded to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. We're Christians. What will there be for us, Jesus? Nice guys finish last. The humble get nothing, they get trodden down upon. It's survival of the fittest, of the most assertive, the most advantaged. What will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields 
because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the upside-down kingdom that Jesus is establishing and it's the kingdom that you have opted into if you're a Christian. If you were told that becoming a Christian was this fire insurance policy that got you out of hell, you need to wake up. To be a Christian is to follow Jesus both in his humiliation and in his exaltation. So blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. And he goes on, blessed, verse 6, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I've said to you over and again, and by way of introduction last week, if you didn't, haven't seen that introduction, please just go onto our website and just, uh, it's, I know it's like 45 minutes, but it's kind of really important if we're going to understand this as we go along. Uh, it's called Basecamp. You can find it online. Anyway, in that I told you one of the major concepts in this sermon is the concept of the heart. And Jesus is always going to bring his teaching back, not to externalities, not to what I can view you and observe you doing, but to the motivation of those actions, the heart. And so here he's speaking to the heart. He's speaking to appetites. He's wanting us to ask the question, what, what is my appetite? Today is my 16th wedding anniversary. And later on after church, I know that I'm going to say to my wife, Renee, who is at home with snotty, sick kids right now, I'm going to say to her, what do you feel like for dinner? We're kind of anchored down with sick kids, but let's at least get something nice for dinner. And I know what she's going to do. She does it every time, has done it for 16 years. She's going to go... It's very cute. Especially in like a four foot nine. Ah, oh, it's a lie. She's five foot. Anyway. She's going to consult her appetite about what you might like to eat that's what Jesus is saying here what's what's your appetite at the kind of gut level this primeval part of you the lizard brain part of you hunger thirst at that level what is driving you what are your appetites I know like you hand the mic around and you're like I just I just want to be able to give more to charity forget that Jesus said, I, don't care. I just do not care at all about externalities. What's your real appetite? When we drill down, when the plough goes into the hard soil, what's down there? What are you hungering for? What are you thirsting for? He says, happy, flourishing, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness is what I want. 
They're the only ones who are going to be filled. Anything else that you thirst and hunger after is going to leave you more hungry and more thirsty. We're banking on this. Our whole economy is based on this central truth. You will never be satisfied. We're banking on it. You got the latest phone? That's fine. I know you're going to get the new one when it comes out because that one will never scratch your itch right down deep. We're banking on it. This is how capitalism works, right? Well, this is just how human nature works. You won't be satisfied. Jesus says, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be. What's righteousness? We defined it last week. Let me just remind you of the, the, the kind of very brief definition. Whole person, heart deep. Behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and kingdom. What does that look like? Well, Jesus was perfectly righteous. So there's your example. He, in every single way, at every moment of the day, was whole person, heart deep, behaving in a way that accords with God's nature, will, and kingdom. And this is what we're called to. We're called to live this way. Now, here's the, here's, a, a good preacher will try and interpret the uh, resistance, all right? Here's the resistance. Here's the protest, and I've heard it so many times. The, the protest is, yeah, but that's Jesus. He's God. I'm just me. How am I supposed to live like him? And in doing that, we excuse ourselves from everything Jesus is demanding of us. It doesn't apply to me. Not fully God and fully man, you know. Nonsense. Nonsense. Not the fact that he is God and you are not. That's absolutely true. It's just nonsense that we excuse ourselves from his teaching on that basis. I know I feel this really strongly because I am a chronic idealist, chronically idealistic. This has caused me much pain in my life because I believe that I can see quite clearly how the world should be, how people should be, how you should be, and how I should be. And it means constant disappointment because you're not what you should be and neither am I. My marriage, not what it should be. My kids, not what they should be. Being a chronic idealist means constant disappointment. I'm learning about this. I can't help it. It is who I am. To the bone, I will never be delivered from it. I'm just trying to understand it better so I can cut myself and others a little bit more slack but here's what I don't want to lose I don't want to lose the ideal that all of us are being called to the Christian ideal is that every little Jesus would live like Jesus the answer to the conundrum that I never can or will be able to is not to say and so I excuse myself from this no the answer to it is to recognize that I'm poor in spirit and throw myself on the mercy of God and plead the righteousness of Jesus. Huh? Don't, please don't excuse yourself from the Christian ideal. 
I love what G.K. Chesterton said about this, talking about paradoxical, he was great for paradoxical sayings. He said, uh, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, it has been found difficult and left untried. That's what we do constantly. I was planning to live like Jesus, but it turns out it's friggin' hard. It requires me to give all of myself to him all of the time and kind of, you know, make all of life all about Jesus. I had a criticism, and it's a fair one, of that kind of being a vision for our church. The criticism was, you can't get there. People helping people make all of life all about Jesus. Someone suggested at least put in like a, a, a vacillating statement like, attempting to make all of life all about Jesus or trying, and I didn't want to do that because the ideal is the ideal. Let's not rescue ourselves from it. Let's not find it to be difficult and leave it untried. Instead, let us each day say, I am a follower of Jesus. That means I'm going to live like Jesus. Yes, I know that I will fail. Praise God for his mercy and grace. Jesus' righteousness is given to me as he takes my sin from me. Jesus' brother James really got this. If you read James's um, epistle or his book, it reads a bit like the Sermon on the Mount. He knew the Sermon on the Mount really well, and so he wrote out of what he knew. And so in James, in uh, what is it, chapter 4, verse 8, um, he says, uh, I don't know if I've got it on the thing. Let me look it up. we have that? Oh, we do have it. He says, um, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Don't give up on the ideal, but come to God in great need of forgiveness wherever you're lacking. We'll come back to that in just a couple of Beatitudes. Let's move on to verse 7. I understand that this is way too much. I understand it's like drinking from a fire hydrant, but I'm trusting that God is starting something here even if we don't get it all at once, all right? Just have to. I have to trust. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, why? Because they're the ones who will be shown mercy. You can't be committed to a Christian ideal, seek God's forgiveness for where you don't reach it, and then turn to everyone and say, why can't you be more like Jesus? Those things don't go together. It's only the merciful, the compassionate, the forgiving ones who will be themselves forgiven. This is just the most obvious teaching of Jesus, especially through Matthew's gospel. Matthew knows this is really key. So you get to, as we will, the the Lord's Prayer in chapter 6. And Jesus will say, forgive us our sins. Hang on. As we forgive those who sin against us. And then if that doesn't get you hard enough, he goes on to say, oh, if you don't forgive others their sins from your heart, you won't be forgiven. 
or to make it even more explicit, and this is going to take me a little bit of time in a sermon where I have none, but I just, I have to read you the parable of the unforgiving servant because this was Jesus' way of describing it. Forget my illustrations, they're impotent. This is what Jesus wants you to hear. Let it, let it crush you. The parable of the unforgiving servant. Remember, bless for the merciful because they will be shown mercy. Peter approached Jesus and asked him, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? And he thinks he's something by saying it. Because the Jewish tradition, Hebrew tradition was, you've got you to forgive someone three times and then you don't have to do it anymore. Three times, that's the godly number. So he's saying, well, I know it's three, but myself, seven. All right? Jesus says, I tell you, not as many as seven, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven could be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought before him. I'm told this is the equivalent of 10 billion with a B dollars, today's money. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed him 10 billion with a B dollars was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, duh, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children and everything they had be sold to pay the debt. At this, a servant fell down before him and said, be patient with me, I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion had mercy and released him and forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. I'm told this is about 20, 20 grand. So not nothing. He grabbed him and started choking him and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me. I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went out and threw him into prison until he paid what it was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. Blessed are the, pure, uh, are the merciful, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy.
This is, this is just the, the truth. The heart that has received mercy from God is incapable of withholding mercy from others. The heart that has truly received, who knows their $10 billion debt that was set aside, cannot then withhold mercy from others. And so it's true those who are not merciful will not be showed mercy. Why? Because they haven't truly been forgiven in the first place. I know this raises all kinds of complicated issues around being hurt and being sinned against, and that needs to be worked out in community with a faithful small group pastor, counsellor, friend. But this this is the, the, the foundation verse for all of our dealings with sinful people. This is why Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, put it like this in chapter 4. He says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, merciful, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. This is the key. If you're finding it hard to forgive someone, whether it's someone that cut you off on the road or someone that committed adultery against you, the key to getting to a place where you can extend mercy is to remember how much you've been forgiven. Forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ Jesus. And so we're about 10 minutes over where I said I would stop. And I've still got a couple to go. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And I'm just going to have to wait for next week. So... I'm just gonna I'm gonna bump them into next week and then that'll get bumped into the next and we'll just I don't know, we'll finish in twenty thirty. <laughs> let me just let me leave you with a kind of summary quote which I found helpful. Benedict Green, again, never came across this guy, but I just it's, it spoke to me and kind of it's an invitation through Jesus' Beatitudes into the rest of the sermon, which I promise one day we will get to. This is what he says as a as a kind of shaping force for us to understand this letter. We've got a quote there from Benedict Green. There we go. The Beatitudes then are a summary description of the character of the true disciple. They encapsulate both the kind of person the disciple will be seen to be if she, he or she is faithfully follows the requirements of the Sermon of, on the Mount. So you read through the whole Sermon on the Mount as we're going to you take it seriously, you take it as exhortation and instruction for your life, your life is going to start looking like these Beatitudes. You're going to start looking like the blessed one. And conversely, this is the, the kind of person the disciple will need to be if she or she, he or she is to rise to the demands of the Sermon on the Mount and to persevere in the right and narrow path, as Jesus says it. 
So I, I don't know how to end it apart from adopting the stance of the, the one who is poor in spirit. And on our behalf, asking for God's grace and mercy as we continue through this sermon, that we would, in fact, be changed from the heart as we go. So let's pray together. Father, none of us here is rich in spirit. We've searched our pockets and we have nothing to bring to the table. Nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling, Lord Jesus. That is our confession this morning. So we throw ourselves on your mercy. We draw near to you so that you would draw near to us. Once again, we ask for your spirit to be at work within us that the fruit of the Spirit might be manifest in us, that the fruit of the Beatitudes might be manifest in us, that you would do the miracle through this little insignificant church, through these short little gatherings together on Sunday morning, that you would do the impossible and really, truly make us more like your Son as we once again submit ourselves to his teaching. Lord, we are Christians. Enable us to follow you. For God's glory and for the good life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.